Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the seventh episode of season five. I hope you all managed to check out last week's interview episode with prison doctor and best-selling author Dr. Amanda Brown. If you haven't already, please check out Amanda's third and final book, The Prison Doctor, The Final Sentence, and let me know what you think of it. I also released a horror movie review episode on Sunday in which I discussed Netflix's 2022 film Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Stephen Marshall of the Slasher Vidcast. That was just a fun little bonus episode, so feel free to check it out if you're bored or if you're in need of a bit of a laugh. As always, before we get into this week's story, let's break the ice a little bit. The show's first opening icebreaker segment sounds a little bit something like this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. And here is this week's dad fact. Keep a roll of duct tape handy when hiking. If you feel a blister forming, apply a strip of tape to the area. It cushions the blister and avoids further irritation. See, that's something that's actually useful for our desert island scenario. I didn't know that, admittedly. But yeah, put some duct tape. Or any kind of tape, I guess. Maybe it has to be duct tape. On a blister. I guess it's the same principle as your actual blister itself, but you have to pop them, don't you? You have to pop a blister. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Here is this week's haiku. Skull cracked open. The delights inside excite. Would you like it fried? Cannibalism. (laughs) As always, a haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. It's meant to be read in one breath. And there is a link to the Serial Killers book of Haiku 2 by Rose Bundy. That's where I get these from if you're interested in buying it. With my intro waffle complete, let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested by two of my listeners. Jodie recommended this case on Instagram via DM. And Stephen Marshall, who features on my Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode, he also suggested it to me a while ago. We're once again in my home county of West Yorkshire this week, but we're closer to home than ever before. Our story this week takes place in the city I currently call home, Leeds. We have been in Leeds before on British Murders. In episode 1 of season 2 we followed the story of Sinead Wooding and her murder. But here are 5 quick fire facts about Leeds that I didn't mention in that episode. Number 1. Leeds is the 5th largest city in England, with an area of 213 miles squared or 552 kilometres squared. That's more than twice the size of Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh, which is just short of 102 miles squared, or 264 kilometres squared. Number two, the name Leeds is derived from the Celtic word Ladenses, which means people of the fast-flowing river. That's in reference to the river air that flows through the city. Number three, people from Leeds are called Lioners, a name thought to have originated from the city's old name, Lodis, Loidis. Lyodis, some old name. Number four, the motto of Leeds is Pro Rege et Lege. I am butchering this Latin. That means for king and law. Most of these facts I didn't know, by the way. And number five, finally, the civic symbol of Leeds is the owl. The Leeds coat of arms has three owls on it, and there's a seven foot high gold leafed owl sculpture outside Leeds Civic Hall. 
With a population of 751,500, according to the 2011 census, Leeds is where the tragic events of this week's high-profile story took place. The villain this week is named John Taylor, and the themes we're going to be discussing include the kidnap and murder of a teenager, as well as discussions about sexual sadism. Continue listening, as always, at your own discretion. Usually at this point I'd go through the life and background of our villain, but this week I'm doing things a little bit differently. Our story starts on September 27th, 1984, when Stevie Wonder's I Just Called to Say I Love You was enjoying its third consecutive week at number one on the UK singles chart. In a delivery suite at one of Leeds' two main hospitals, expectant parents Sharon and Michael Tiernan welcome the arrival of their second child. I can't confirm which hospital it was, but more than likely it was either Leeds General Infirmary or LGI, or St James's University Hospital, known locally as Jimmy's, the latter of which is where my daughter was born. The baby was a girl whom Sharon and Michael named Leanne. The beaming parents now had two daughters, having welcomed their first child Michelle to the world three years earlier. Sharon was a finance clerk born in 1961, I believe, with Michael working as an engineer, and he was born in either 1961 or 1960. Sharon and Michael later divorced. As far as I can tell, Leanne primarily lived with Sharon and Michelle in Bramley, a district in West Leeds. Background-wise for Leanne and her family, that's about it. One can assume that from the complete lack of any readily available information about her childhood, it was a happy one, and for better use of a word, rather ordinary. Fast forward into the time in which the events of this story take place, we find ourselves in November 2000. Leanne, being one of the oldest pupils in her final high school year, was preparing to sit her GCSE exams the following summer. The standard number of GCSEs, an initialism for General Certificate of Secondary Education, is 9, and that's how many Leanne was studying for. She was 16 years old and in year 11 at West Leeds High School, a former community school located in Armley, a neighbouring district of Bramley. It was in operation from September 7th, 1907 until its closure date on August 31st, 2009. Leanne appears to have enjoyed school. There's no evidence to suggest she was having any issues with her teachers or fellow pupils. She'd never run away from home or complained about her home life. Both of those factors made it all the more worrying when, on November 26, 2000, after making her way home from Leeds City Centre, Leanne disappeared into thin air. Leanne had spent the day in the city centre with her best friend, 15-year-old Sarah Whitehouse. The two teenagers were trying to be proactive and get ahead with their Christmas shopping. According to the Met Office, the period between September and November 2000 was, at the time, the wettest on record over the UK as a whole. It made sense then that Leanne had taken an umbrella with her. Leanne also had her mobile phone on her person, her keys and a few coins. More on those later. She'd wrapped up for the cold weekend outing and was said to have been wearing a navy blue woolen LS jacket, a black and cream polo neck jumper black trousers and some boots. After purchasing a couple of Christmas presents, Leanne and Sarah made their way to Leeds City bus station in preparation for their journey back home to Bramley. The six mile journey takes about 20 minutes in a car, though in a bus it might have taken a bit longer due to it frequently stopping on the way to pick up and drop off passengers. After disembarking the bus, the best friends made their way down Huffley Lane before separating near Sarah's house. 
Looking at Google Maps, it appears that Sarah lived on Huffley Close, a cul-de-sac at the end of Huffley Lane. Before you get there, the road forks, and in the middle of the fork is an entrance to a footpath named Huffley Gill. As of November 2012, the last time Google Street View was updated in the area, the path appears to have streetlights, but back in the year 2000, it was a completely unlit cut-through. The narrow path is flanked on both sides by trees with overarching branches, which effectively turns it into sort of an outdoor tunnel. Sarah saw Leanne making her way down Huffley Gill at 4.50pm on November 26th and called her house phone a short while later to check that she'd gotten home safe. To Sarah's surprise, Leanne's mum Sharon advised her that Leanne hadn't come home. That was most unusual. Not only was it out of character, but Sarah recalled that there were no hints of anything worrying when the two girls said their goodbyes before separating. Huffley Gill is located roughly 10 minutes away from Leanne's home on Lansier Mount, so she should have definitely arrived home by the time Sarah called. At 5.20pm, half an hour after Sarah said she last saw Leanne, Sharon rang her youngest daughter's mobile. It rang approximately 20 times before the call cut off. Sharon immediately tried again, but this time the call cut off after only four rings. The phone then appears to have been switched off. Not knowing what to do, and becoming increasingly worried as the minutes ticked by, Sharon phoned the police at 7pm to report Leanne as missing. Contrary to popular belief, it's not illegal to go missing in the UK, and you don't have to wait 24 hours before contacting the police if someone you know goes missing. Within 48 hours, the missing person will be recorded as missing, with the details being made available to other UK police forces. A week soon passed without anyone hearing a word about Leanne or her whereabouts. With concerns now growing exponentially, the police decided to organise a reconstruction of the events that took place after Leanne and Sarah got off the bus in Bramley a week earlier. Playing the part of her younger sister, Michelle and Sarah hopped on a bus from Leeds City bus station to Bramley, walked along Huffley Lane, before separating where Leanne cut through Huffley Gill. The girls were flanked by police for the duration of the reconstructed journey, and after safely getting across Huffley Gill and reappearing at Rainville Crescent, Michelle walked the 10-minute journey back home to Lancia Mount. Along the way, police officers spoke to several members of the public and asked if they recalled seeing Leanne on that route seven days earlier. The photo of Leanne shown by the officers didn't jog anyone's memories, although one witness did recall seeing a man walking a dog at Huffley Gill around the time Leanne was last seen. The unidentified man was described as being stocky and in his 30s, while standing around 5 feet 8 inches tall. He wore a black woolly hat, a long waterproof jacket and filthy jeans. The round-faced stranger was said to also have a reddish complexion that may or may not have been caused by a scar. Not much to go on by all accounts. The investigation into Leanne's disappearance was led by Detective Superintendent Chris Gregg of West Yorkshire Police. He said, We can't explain why Leanne has disappeared at this stage, but we have to remain hopeful that she is going to make a safe return. The next step was to appeal to the local community of Bramley. DS Gregg appealed to those who lived in the areas surrounding Huffley Gill and Lancia Mount to search their gardens, their garages, their sheds. Searches were also undertaken by officers on or around Huffley Gill in an attempt to find any clues as to Leanne's whereabouts. 
Sarah explained that Leanne purchased some jewellery from Argos during their shopping trip, including a gold wishbone ring and a titanium navel bar. Photos were produced of similar items to give those searching an idea of what they were looking for. Every day since going missing, Leanne's friends and family tried to contact her on her mobile. The messages either went undelivered or were not answered, which was seriously out of character for Leanne. The only time her phone had been switched on after she disappeared was for a very brief period on November 27th, the day after she went missing. Michael Tiernan, Leanne's dad, arrived back in Leeds on December 3rd, 2000 after cutting his holiday short. He'd been in Tenerife, and it isn't made clear as to why he didn't arrive in Leeds until seven days later. In all likelihood, it could have been something as simple as not being able to get an earlier fly, or perhaps he wasn't made aware until a few days after Leanne had disappeared in the hope that she'd come home. The complete lack of evidence was concerning, and the police came to the sad conclusion that Leanne had more than likely been abducted by an unknown assailant. On December 10th, 2000, two full weeks after Leanne was last seen, DS Gregg extended his team's search to some of the parkland areas surrounding her home. It doesn't specify, but a map of the surrounding area suggests that searches were conducted in Bramley Fall Park and Woods, a 10 to 15 minute walk from Lancia Mount. Beyond Bramley Falls, further searches were conducted in the area between the Leeds and Liverpool Canal and the River Eyre, the latter of which backs onto the historic ruins of Kirkstall Abbey, one of the best preserved Cistercian monasteries in England. It's actually not far from my house as well. DS Gregg enlisted the help of moorland rescue teams, specialised dog handlers, officers on horseback, a search helicopter and even an underwater search unit. A large chunk of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal was searched with the West Yorkshire Police Underwater Search Unit covering the three-mile area from Spring Garden Lock to Bramley Falls. Time for some stats now. During that initial search for Leanne Tiernan, over 200 police officers investigated 800 houses, 140 commercial properties and 1,500 sheds, outbuildings and gardens. The West Yorkshire Police Underwater Search Unit searched 32 drain shafts as well as several wells. A total of 140 men were taken in by the police for questioning, with 12 search warrants executed. DNA was taken from each of the men questioned. In spite of all that effort and thorough searching, not one trace of Leanne Tiernan was found. Not a single piece of evidence. Let's jump ahead eight months from December 2000 to August 20th, 2001. Mark Bisson was walking his two dogs around Linley Wood, located next to a reservoir of the same name, in the market town of Otley in the city of Leeds. Otley's around 11 miles north of Bramley, for reference. My research indicates there's a car park named Warren Point at Linley Wood, but for the life of me, I could not find it on a map. Must be one of those... Locals only know where it is things. Regardless, Mark was to make a horrifying discovery that day that would haunt Sharon, Michael and Michelle forever. Half concealed beneath the undergrowth, Mark spotted an unusual object and soon called the police. Wrapped up in a total of nine bin liners and placed inside a quilt cover was the body of a teenage girl. Officers' fears were confirmed two days later on August 22nd, 2001, when fingerprint analysis confirmed the identity of the girl as being Leanne Tiernan. She had been strangled to death, 
and initial investigations revealed no evidence of a sexual assault. However, it is believed that some sexual activity may have been forced upon her. Leanne's hands were bound with cable ties and her hair was still in the same ponytail it was in on November 26, 2000, secured by the same hair bobble. After officially changing the investigation type from a missing person one to a murder one, Detective Superintendent Chris Gregg made the following statement. It is a shocking murder. Leanne was devoted to her mother and her sister. She had friends at school and was happy. It's not known how long the body had been in the position where it was found, but the initial examination by the pathologist suggested she had not been there since November. Further tests have been carried out to determine the length of time the body has been there. We would like to offer our sympathy to Leanne's family who are deeply distressed. They are being comforted by family and friends and have support from specially trained police officers. Leanne was a happy, normal teenager. She was a lovely girl and will be sadly missed. We are determined to catch whoever is responsible. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Operation Conifer, the codename given to the murder investigation, was to be conducted by 50 officers and was led by DS Gregg. The codename Conifer, I'm assuming that was given due to the area where Leanne's body was found because it had such a high density of conifer trees. Remember earlier when I said Leanne had taken an umbrella with her when she went shopping? I also said she had a mobile phone, keys and a few coins. All of those items, along with her boots, coat and Christmas presents, were missing. On August 23rd, 2001, an understandably emotional Sharon made a statement in the hope that her youngest daughter's killer would be brought to justice. She said, We cannot put into words how we feel today. It was the worst possible news. It's impossible to express how we feel. We have been living in hope since she went missing, and we were praying this was not Leanne. Leanne was a lovely girl, and we miss her terribly. She was my baby. She was my best mate. We would ask anyone who knows anything about who has done this to contact the police. You might be thinking, how on earth did nobody spot the body if it was only crudely concealed in an area where people walk their dogs? Here comes a bit of an unusual twist. It hasn't been confirmed as being 100% what happened, but forensic experts believe Leanne's body was kept in some form of cold storage for 8 or 9 months before finally being dumped at Lindley Wood. They believe Leanne's body had only been there a matter of weeks before dog walker Mark discovered it, as it only had a handful of pine needles on it from the surrounding conifer trees. Mark also added further confirmation of this by stating he definitely did not see the body there when he was in the same spot walking his dogs three months earlier. Leanne's body had not deteriorated and decomposed as much as it should have over a period of nine months. The other explanation, of course, was that she was killed shortly before her body was left at Lindley Wood, but that would mean she'd been held hostage for almost a year. The cold storage theory was thought to be the most likely explanation. As officers began searching the area for clues, they were reminded of an unsolved murder case involving the murder of a 32-year-old sex worker from Bradford named Yvonne Fitt. Yvonne was stabbed to death after last being seen in January 1992 at the Department of Social Security Office in Bradford, West Yorkshire. Her body was found eight months later in a shallow grave at none other than Lindley Wood. Her body was in fact buried a mere 100 yards away from where Leanne's body was found. 
There was no way the police could confirm the two cases as being linked at that stage, but the similarities were such that they were forced to explore that possibility all the same. On August 25, 2001, it was suggested by forensic archaeologists that Leanne's killer had initially planned on burying her body in a shallow grave rather than crudely concealing it beneath the undergrowth. They had discovered a hole three feet away from where Leanne's body was found that was two feet wide and one foot deep. Due to the dense foliage and tree roots in the area, Leanne's killer is thought to have abandoned the idea due to the level of difficulty it was providing. But who was this cold and heartless child murderer? In the two months since discovering Leanne's body, police were doing their utmost to answer that question, and on October 16, 2001, they believed they had found their man. Born on August 27, 1956, the man arrested on suspicion of Leanne's murder was 45-year-old parcel force delivery man John Taylor. Also from Bramley, the divorced father of two had his terraced home on Cockshot Drive searched by police as part of a mass house search, something which is considered a rare and unusual investigation tactic. I'll come on to how and why John was arrested in just a moment, but before I do, let me tell you a little bit about him. Before his divorce was finalised in 1996, John Taylor and his ex-wife had two children. His son was born in 1981 and his daughter was born in 1983. But relationships and John Taylor, they didn't go well together. Many of his relationships were turbulent due to his sadistic sexual tendencies. As a singleton, John frequently contacted women who had placed Lonely Hearts ads in newspapers or magazines. Remember, this was a time before online dating apps such as Tinder existed. Police officers were able to gain contact with a number of females via John's phone records, and they revealed just how sick and twisted he could be in the bedroom. John's sexual weapon of choice was plastic cable ties, which he used to bind his partner's hands behind their back during sex. He was also fond of using bondage items such as whips, chains and other objects prevalent within the sadomasochism scene. One former girlfriend the police had tracked down told them she felt like she was being raped when having sex with John due to his extreme bondage fetish. The next part involves animals, so any animal lovers out there, prepare yourselves. After his arrest, the police dug up John's garden, where they discovered the bodies of 28 ferrets and the skeletons of four dogs. The skull of one of the dogs had been crushed. John was known by the Bramley locals as the Pet Man as he was known to be an animal lover and kept several dogs and ferrets as pets. If only they knew what he did with those animals. John also sold pet food, which only enhanced his animal-loving reputation. The truth, though, was that he loved killing animals more than he loved caring for them. He frequently tortured rabbits after catching them in traps. He used to stab foxes over and over again, got further kicks out of beating pheasants to death with a club. That's it for animal stuff. Despite all of that, John's only ever criminal conviction came when he stole a suit at the age of 15. But what actually led to his arrest on this occasion? One word. Fibres. Forensic scientists discovered some fibres in the nails on John's floor. Further analysis of said fibres showed they were a perfect match to similar fibres found on Leanne's body. John had recently taken the carpet up in his house. One would assume in an attempt to hide any evidence, but he didn't realise that the nails holding down the carpet would lead to his downfall. Anyone that's ever taken a carpet up will understand how and why the fibres remained on the nails. 
They're ridiculously stubborn, those carpet nails. Some twine was then found at John's house, which matched the twine used to tie some of the other bin liners together, with the producer of the twine being a manufacturer in Devon. They had produced the twine in a one-off batch, with its intended use being that of rabbit netting. Another key piece of evidence linking John to Leanne's murder was the dog collar placed around her neck to keep a bin liner placed over her head in place. The collar's tan leather material was produced by a company made in Nottingham, East Midlands. When going through the company's customer records, police discovered a business named Pets Pajamas. Pets Pajamas, who were based in Liverpool, Merseyside, had very recently sold six tan leather dog collars matching the description of the one found on Leanne's body. One of those six collars was sold to a man named John Taylor, who lived in Bramley. As I mentioned earlier, John sold pet food, as well as other pet supplies, to provide a second form of income to supplement his earnings from the parcel force job. John Taylor first appeared in court at Leeds Magistrates on October 18th, 2001, two days after his initial arrest. DS Chris Gregg had the following to say about John and his background. Taylor appears to have been an ordinary man, but he is not. He has an extremely dangerous nature. This is displayed in the way in which he treated animals throughout his life. John appeared in court again four months later in February 2002 and pleaded guilty to the abduction of Leanne Tiernan, but not guilty to her murder. Some key witnesses were called to court, including one of his ex-girlfriends. Referred to as simply Mrs. E, she claimed that John once asked her, and I'm not making this up, if he could have sex with her 15-year-old daughter. How disturbing is that? Mrs. E went on to testify that John had told her something that made her sick to the stomach in February 2001, a mere three months after he had killed Leanne Tiernan. John told Mrs. E that he fantasised about tying her daughter up with cable ties and having sex with her. A reminder that Mrs. E's daughter was 15 at the time, only a year younger than Leanne. On July 8th, 2002, John Taylor finally pleaded guilty to the murder of Leanne Tiernan after admitting what he'd done at Leeds Crown Court. The chain of events on that wet November day back in 2000 were as follows. John spotted Leanne walking on her own through Huffley Gill after separating from Sarah. As he walked past the teenager, he turned around and grabbed her from behind. After blindfolding Leanne, John placed his coat over her head and led her to his home on Cockshot Drive, located half a mile from Huffley Gill. It would have only taken them about 10 minutes to get there. Witnesses would later claim they heard a scream as well as a mobile phone ringing although the ringing eventually stopped. That will have been Sharon attempting to ring Leanne before John declined the call and switched the phone off. What happened at John's house isn't 100% clear, though even if it were, going into further detail would serve no real purpose. Regardless, the end result was an innocent teenager being strangled to death by an incredibly dangerous and violent man. No conclusive test could be done, but it's thought that John kept Leanne's body in cold storage at his house for anywhere between three weeks and nine months before dumping her body at Lindley Wood. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Astill handed John two life sentences at Leeds Crown Court, one for kidnapping Leanne and one for murdering Leanne. He said in his closing statement, You are a dangerous sexual sadist. Your purpose in kidnapping this young girl was so that you could satisfy your perverted cravings. Initially, Judge Astle wanted to give John Taylor 25 years as a minimum before he's eligible for parole, but Lord Wolfe, who was Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales at the time, went on to reduce that minimum to 20 years. 
His justification for doing so was that he felt it was more in line with the then-current practice. Lord Wolfe did say that despite the new 20-year minimum, it was likely that John Taylor would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Sharon's response to the sentencing was as follows. Although John Taylor has been locked up, our agony continues. We feel nothing from him. We are pleased that he has been locked up so he can't do this to anyone else, but life should mean life. A series of cold case reviews took place following John's arrest as they now had his DNA on file and were convinced that Leanne Tiernan was not his first victim. At first, John was only linked to two historical cold cases. On October 18, 1988, a balaclava-clad John Taylor threatened a 32-year-old mother with a knife before raping her near Huffley Gill. She was on her way to pick up her kids from school. On March 1, 1989, a once again balaclava-clad John Taylor broke into the home of a 21-year-old woman in Bramley and threatened her with a knife before stripping her, blindfolding her, gagging her and raping her. John was formally charged with the two rapes in October 2002 and pleaded guilty to both in court on February 4, 2003. He was handed two further life sentences along with a 30-year minimum sentence by His Honour Norman Jones QC the then recorder of Leeds. Despite these latest convictions leading to further life sentences being handed to John, DS Gregg wasn't convinced that that was the end of it. He said, We are still concerned that there may be other victims and families who have been affected by the actions of Taylor. Our inquiries are ongoing, and we are still trying to piece together as much information as we can about him. DS Gregg's concerns were eventually found to be warranted. It was revealed in late 2018 that John Taylor had committed 16 total offences between 1977 and 1996 against five separate women and children, one of whom was a seven-year-old girl. The offences included rape, buggery, grievous bodily harm, as well as several other offences. As with the other two rape convictions, these latest five came to light on the back of the cold case reviews using John's DNA. On October 26, 2018, John Taylor was handed a whole life order by Judge Robin Mayers. That means he will never be eligible for parole and will spend the rest of his life in prison. In his closing statement, Judge Mayers said, You are responsible for a 20-year campaign of rape and sexual assaults against women and children, fueled by a sadistic desire to inflict pain for sexual gratification. The trauma, fear and nightmares that would have engendered in that child are beyond comprehension. Detective Superintendent Jim Dunkley of West Yorkshire Police said, Hopefully today's sentences bring a degree of comfort to his victims who have been through an horrific ordeal. I do though want to pay tribute to them for bravely coming forward and telling police what happened to them. Even if you were the victim of a serious crime decades ago, we will do all we can to bring the offender, or offenders, to justice. John Taylor is currently being held at Wakefield Prison, where he has been for the last 20 years. And that was the story of British murderer John Taylor. Thanks again to Stephen Marshall and Jodie for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one, dear listener. I have got eight new reviews to read out this week, so please bear with me. I do read them all out, as I say. Thank you, firstly, Apple Podcast user Isuru123 for leaving British murders a five-star rating and review. They simply said, excellent podcast, love it. Thank you Apple Podcast user Todd Hedges for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Todd said, 
I recently found this podcast recommended by my friend Zevin Odelberg, and a few episodes in, I'm already hooked. Stuart does a great job of telling the story, adding some humour and some other extra content. Keep up the great work, and much success to you. Todd, who is the co-host of Middle-Aged and Creeped Out Podcast. Speaking of Zevin Odelberg, thank you, good sir, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Zevin, who is the host of Kinda Murdery, a show on which I recently appeared as a guest, said, This is my number one podcast. Stuart Blues is a wonderful storyteller with a lovely voice that's easy to listen to. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Miss Chelsea, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Chelsea said, Absolutely love this. I am a cleaner at a school and I am so glad I stumbled across this podcast. It makes the hours go quicker. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Rakshi S for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Rakshi said, I stumbled across this podcast and I am so glad I did. Stuart is amazing. So many stumblings. Love it. Thank you, Robert Pearson, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on BritishMurders.com. Robert said, fantastic podcasts, easy listening, straight to the point. A bit like your review, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel Hudson, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Rachel said, Fast Becoming My Favourite Crime Podcast. This podcast has covered cases I have not heard of, which is rare for me. Since moving to the US from the UK a few years ago, I've missed hearing a podcast in a familiar voice, so that was what drew me to it initially, but the content has kept me hooked. I love Stuart's sense of humour, I love dad facts, if only for the ridiculously cute intro, and I even love the random geographic facts too, although I do fast forward through the haiku as they freak me out. Poetry and murder don't appear to be Rachel's thing. (laughs) Overall, I totally recommend. And finally, this is the last one. Thank you, Samantha Norris, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Samantha said, Absolutely love your podcast. I have recommended it to everyone. Keep it up. Thanks again, Isuru123, Todd, Zevan, Chelsea, Rakshi, Robert, Rachel and Samantha. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of British Murders, have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or on BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. You can leave me voicemail messages on BritishMurders.com. I'll play those as well. Thank you, Sam Wilkie, for supporting British Murders on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show like Sam, you can do that on my website, BritishMurders.com. There's a link on there. Or you can support the show on a one-off basis via BuyMeACoffee.com. Again, the link is on the website. Please continue to email your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or just message me via social media. You'll get the episode covered and you will get a shout-out. Next week, I'll be telling you the story of the murder of Julia Rawson, committed by Nathan Maynard Ellis and David Leasley. As for this week, I've nothing else for you. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.